This is Maxine and the Planets Unknown, a sci-fi audiobook in podcast form, written by, performed by, and produced by Brad Lawrence. That's me, to quote Karina Longworth. Before we get started, one small note on the sound quality. I am not recording this in a studio. I am recording this in the tiny side room of my Brooklyn apartment during a pandemic. All around my apartment are the sounds of ambulance sirens because of the pandemic and children trying to get just a little bit of outdoor time on the concrete splotch that passes for a backyard in an apartment in Brooklyn. So, I have done my absolute best to soundproof against this as much as I can, but Brooklyn, pandemic, ambulances, children. For God's sake, think of the children. And do your best to enjoy what I think is a pretty good story, in spite of what may be some occasionally imperfect audio. Thank you. Maxine and the Planets Unknown, Episode 7, Chapters 13 and 14. Chapter 13. Sumner didn't bother knocking. As the sheriff, he had an access code that would open any commercial or residential door in the passenger section of the ship. He'd only used it twice before, once when old May Sakamoto had a stroke and was unresponsive in her residence, and once when three people almost died from under-the-counter moonshine that Max Pearl had been making in the storeroom of his tavern. He'd refused to open the door so Sumner could confiscate his still. Not only had Sumner confiscated the still, he'd also handcuffed Max to a bench in the infirmary where three customers were on life support. Sheriff Abidway had made him memorize the override code as soon as he realized that Sumner was on track to be his successor. But now, trying to enter it at Sandoval's door was like trying to recall what you'd had for breakfast on the third day of fifth grade. It took him six infuriating tries. When the door finally slid open, he realized he'd been holding his breath while he concentrated, and he was likely two tries from just passing out completely. He exhaled and entered the office waiting area. It was pitch black. The infirmary was made up of a waiting room and a registration panel where you could enter your name and address and reason for visit, or press an emergency button if the situation was so dire that you needed someone to get their ass out there right that minute. Once you got beyond that, there were a series of examination rooms, an automated surgery room, and in the very back was a laboratory and Sandoval's office. On the second floor were beds for long-term care, meaning anything more than an afternoon, and the floor above that held two residences, one for the full-time nurse and the other for the doc herself. Normally, the first floor of the infirmary was the most well-lit place in the whole ship. Sandoval had once told Sumner that shadows were a doctor's enemy. If someone came in with a skin discoloration or an open wound, you needed to be able to see what the situation was clearly and in full color. But now, everything was dark. 
He got through the waiting area and into the examination rooms, also dark. The burrowers suddenly jumped back into his mind, and he had to make an effort to push it away. He walked forward, hand stretched out until his fingertips hit something. It was one of the privacy curtains that separated each of the examination bays. He grabbed it, and just before he could move it, he suddenly had a flash in his mind of a zombie standing there on the other side of the parasite sticking out of its chest, waiting to rip into Sumner and crawl straight into his bowels and eat him from the inside out. Jesus! Whatever was happening to this goddamn ship was reducing him to a ten-year-old. Got himself together. He pulled the drape back with a rattle of metal rings. No zombies, no parasites. He started moving forward again. At each curtain, at each examination bay, it was the same thing. His deepest, most primal fears coming back to shake him so hard he wanted to vomit or run or do both at the same time. Each time, he pushed through. Finally, he came to a door with a light streaming from a window in the center. It was the lab. Sumner didn't even bother to look in first. He just needed to be out of the darkness. He shoved the door open and was momentarily blinded by white LED lights overhead. Christ, Sumner, it took you long enough. It was Sandoval's voice. If you dragged it over three miles of sandpaper. As his vision cleared, he saw her. She was sitting on a stool by the back counter, and she looked like shit. Dr. Isabel Sandoval was not a woman who looked like shit easily. She normally was so put together that it seemed like she had been born in a sensible pair of slacks and a freshly pressed button-down shirt. They had been on three dates, she and Sumner, in the two months right before he had taken up guardianship of Maxine. Those were the only three occasions in which he had seen Sandoval not wearing her crisp white lab coat. The romance had gone nowhere. They each sort of adhered to the unspoken narrative that it was because Sumner's new responsibilities as an adoptive father had made romance a low priority. But both of them knew, deep down, that they were the type of solitary person who made sense of the world through work. They weren't built for companionship. They were creatures of purpose. But... The put-together woman that Sumner had sat with through three awkward dinners and who had eventually become a trusted friend was not what he found in the lab. Sandoval's black hair, which was normally tucked neatly away, was hanging down in greasy tangles. Her lab coat was crumpled in a corner, and her button-down blouse was hanging up under a Vila t-shirt that had seen better and less sweat-stained days. She was slumped on an elbow, her head tilted forward like it weighed a ton, and she was regarding the sheriff through bloodshot eyes surrounded by dark circles. She licked dry lips before she spoke. I figured you'd be here sooner. I'm a little insulted. There was, uh, I've been, uh, I've been having some memory issues, I guess. Sandoval raised an eyebrow. That's a new one. Hand me that pad. She nodded toward a pad sitting on a black work counter between them. Sumner took notice of their surroundings for the first time. Sandoval looked like she was about to literally come apart and die in a disheveled heap on the floor. Meanwhile, her lab was in perfect order. 
as clean and organized a workspace as he had ever seen. The pad in question was even perfectly squared with the corner of the table. He picked it up and gave it to her. Memory issues. She started tapping things into the pad. Like what? Can't remember personal details or can't remember where you put things? More like uh, not being able to remember going places or, or doing things. Hmm. Lost time. Interesting. Sumner told her what he'd pieced together, and she took it all down in her pad. When he finished, she looked at it appraisingly. Then she tossed the pad down on the counter like nothing on it amounted to anything. Then she thought better of it and lined it up with the nearest corner. Sumner said, Do you know what's happening to us? Yeah. We're fucked. Sumner looked at her. Ugh, look, I don't have a lot to go on. Six people came by after landing, complaining of anxiety and irritability, feelings of fatigue. I took blood samples from four of them, body scans from all of them. Then I took more blood and more scans from myself and Nurse James when we started to present similar symptoms. I would have gotten samples from the part-timers too, but by the time I realized that might be important, they had stopped coming in or answering when I called. Then James stopped coming down from his residence, and then I found myself unable to go up to mine, unable to leave the lab, in fact. So all in all, I have partial data from six people? It's just not a lot. She looked up to see if Sumner was still with her. He was. It, it took me forever to see it. It's real sneaky. Here's what I got out of it, though. It's a pathogen, probably plant-based like pollen. I'm assuming we've been breathing it in. I don't think anyone has eaten anything from the planet yet, and it's not a virus, so I don't see us transmitting it person to person. So it must be in the air. It goes right for the brain, and once it's in there, it seems to have this very specific effect on the fight-or-flight impulse. Have you had a look at the cargo manifest? It hadn't occurred to Sumner that Sandoval would have access to that, but he guessed it made sense. He nodded. Then you can see almost everyone seems to be in their home, or somewhere they're equally comfortable. I'm here in the lab. You found Charlie in the VR coffin. It's like some kind of induced agoraphobia. People retreat to their safest place, and the urge to stay there is so great that even when they run out of resources, food, water, oxygen, they won't or can't leave. Sandoval rubbed her face with her hand. I cannot, I cannot tell you how flimsy this is. All of this is next to a wild guess, and just what intuitively sounds right, or plausible maybe, there's precedent from other ecosystems, fungi or plants affecting behavior in specific ways. There are parasites that affect behavior of their hosts to get them to do things that are to their own benefit. And the hosts will do it, even if what they are doing is harmful to themselves. So you have to ask yourself, why this? Why make us watch VR shows till we die? Or, she gestured around her lab and shrugged, or work ourselves to death. If I was going to hypothesize in the most unprofessional way, I would say that 
we triggered something in this environment. Maybe it's in the local plant life, maybe it's bigger than that. But if you had a foreign intruder, an, an infection, something from the outside, and you wanted to keep that infection from spreading, what would you do? You'd isolate, you'd starve it of food and territory until it just died out. That's us. This place is trying to kill us like we're, like we're, like, like we're a bacterial infection. She'd started talking faster, almost manic, making chopping motions with her hand, and then she stopped. You're weird, though. You keep finding yourself back at your place. Then you try to do your job. Then you go back to your place and repeat. I don't know what that means. I should get a blood sample and a scan before you go, though. Go? Where in the hell was Sumner going to go? What was he going to do? His job was to protect this town. But how could he protect it from this? He wasn't a scientist or a doctor, and it was obvious the one right in front of him had no idea what to do about it. So what chance did he have? And now, this brought him back to the thing he'd been most terrified to look at straight on. It was the only thing left, and it was the most essential thing. I... I can't find Maxine. He tried to keep the fear out of his voice, but from the way Sandoval looked at him, it didn't seem he'd been very successful. She's not in her room? No, and I've texted her a dozen times. Sandoval thought for a minute. Where does she spend her time when she's not at home? Does she, does she hang out at the game center? Does she have a favorite room at the school? Any friends' houses she's, she spends a lot of time at? No. She's a pretty solitary kid. I mean, she talks to everybody. You know how she is. But she's not really, I don't know, certainly friends with anybody. Not even sure she's friends with me. Well, you're her parent. She shouldn't be friends with you. Wait, what about the manifest? You can find her on the manifest. Sumner shook his head curtly. Manifest tells you how many people are on board and where people are located but it can't show you specific individuals on request. It can if you use the nanny. Nanny? Yes, Sandoval cocked her head. You don't know about the nanny? Sumner gave her a blank look. All the children that are born on the ship get a biodegradable nanny tracker implanted on the underside of their arm two weeks after birth. You had one. I guess your parents never told you about it. Each one is coded to that specific child, and only the parents know the code. I'm surprised no one thought to tell you about this when you became her guardian. There was a small, unpleasantly bitter feeling that suddenly ran through Sumner, but he shoved it aside. There was no time for that kind of self-indulgence. Sandoval continued. The tracker itself has a preset decay rate, so by adolescence it begins to break down and the body flushes it out of your system. By 16 or 17, usually. Maxine is 15. Then it might still be sending data. As her attending physician, I would have the code on file. Sandoval picked up the pad again. There was more tapping and swiping as Sumner waited. Finally, a storm cloud rolled across her already darkened face. She's not showing up on the ship's internal server. What does that mean? It means... I guess it means the tracker has already expired. 
Sumner felt a kind of despair nip at him that he knew he was only vulnerable to when it came to Maxine. He held himself still, but he was teetering on a knife's edge. If he thought that she was somewhere, in some bolt hole he never knew about, starving herself to death because she couldn't get out, couldn't come find him when she needed him, and, and then he wouldn't be able to find her, not until he found her the way he'd found Charlie Bennett, or that he might might never find her at all. She might, unless... He looked up. Sandoval was staring through him. Unless she left the ship. Sandoval slid her way through various functions and interfaces until she found what she was looking for. We're in luck. There's a Contiki satellite in range. Let me see if I can get it to do what I want it to do. I'm not even sure. As Sumner watched, she fiddled and tapped and swiped and shuffled, her face going through various contortions that defied any interpretation. Then she stopped and stared at the screen. Holy shit! I've got her! Sumner stood upright. She's... She's on the planet. Jesus, she's like a... A solid three kilometers away from the ship. Sandoval looked up at Sumner with her eyes wide. You have to... You have to get her. Yes. Yes, I do. Yes, you do. But then you have to bring her back here. Sumner, I have nothing to go on. I have a tiny data sample, and mostly it's all the same. Every test I have run, every model I have constructed has yielded zero results. But Maxine left the ship. She's an outlier. She must have been exposed just like the rest of us, but her behavior is totally different. I don't know what it means, and it may mean shit, but it's, it's all we've got. I need her blood. I need to know what's happening in her brain. It is, if it is significantly different... To what is happening to the rest of us, it may be enough for me to put together some sort of treatment. Or it may not. Chances are we're all still screwed, but... Sandoval gestured around the room. Right now, I have absolutely nothing else. This is the only thing left. She leaned forward and showed Sumner the little dot that represented Maxine out there alone on this still alien planet that there was every reason to believe was currently trying to kill them all. Sumner, go get your daughter. Sandoval had transferred the satellite info and the code for Maxine's nanny tracker to Sumner's device. Then, as a last thought before he ran out the door, she took a blood sample and a body scan. It had taken less than two minutes, but it was all Sumner could do to stand still for it. Finally, she had what she needed, and he was out the door and back on the street. He rounded a corner and came within sight of an egress bay. There was the planet and the outside world. And with it, a feedback-like squall in Sumner's brain, and a feeling like he'd been punched in the gut. Well, he had his job. And the first part of that job was getting off this goddamn ship without his brain melting inside his skull. Chapter 14 Mr. Humphreys Maxine stared at him. For a moment, this seemed like a very unlikely place for Mr. Humphreys to be. But then again... 
Mr. Humphreys was a badger with a genius IQ who traveled the stars in a steam-powered spaceship, so why not here when you really thought about it? And it certainly looked like Mr. Humphreys, about three-quarters of a meter tall, wiry gray and black fur, standing upright in his rust-colored spacesuit with its sensible tweed patches on the elbow and the metal ring where he would attach his transparent space helmet, but only when absolutely necessary, as everyone knows it is rude to wear a hat in social occasions, even one that is transparent. This among the many lessons that Maxine had learned when she'd read the Selena Simon series four times, all eight books. She had been just at the beginning of book five, The Planet of Frozen Time, when her family had died. Since then, she had always had one of the books open on her pad, a book which featured, as the titular character Selena Simon's constant companion in conscience, a fastidious badger named Mr. Humphreys. And now, here he was, Mr. Humphreys, looking at her, but not staring, waiting, but trying not to give any hint of impatience, leaning on his umbrella, but never slouching. Maxine had made her way to the bottom of the hill and found the stream she had been searching for, and there he was. There had been a moment of dizziness and disorientation while descending from the crest, and she had a vague worry that she might get sick again. Things had gotten dusky, murky, her center of gravity seemed off, and she found herself teetering for a moment. She'd had a sudden and specific memory of getting sick one time when she was younger. These things occasionally happen mysteriously, even in the enclosed and heavily regulated atmosphere of an emigre ship, and Sumner had brought her a bucket and a damp washcloth. She remembered how he had put his hand on her back as she puked, she also remembered being caught between feeling desperately grateful that he was there and irritated beyond belief at how he seemed to be mildly amused at her plight. Maxine was unaware that children on the ship were regularly exposed to engineered viral pathogens as a way of motivating the development of their otherwise unchallenged immune systems. Sumner had been amused because she had gotten her dosage of simulated stomach flu, C-schedule, ages 13 to 15, right on time, just like he had. It was a protocol that every emigre found out about as an adult, mystery solved, then felt mortally betrayed by, and then subjected their own children to when they became parents, like Santa Claus, but with a side of diarrhea. There on the path down from the embankment, Maxine could see Sumner's face as clear as day. Behind his face, she could see the vague and fading face of her mother, and behind that, the even more distant face of her real father, and how they were trapped forever in the static of screen images and vids, and how unlike life those things were even when you had them transferred to VR and sat for hours and hours trying to find a way into a pre-recorded world that was gone in a way that no 3D extraction could remedy. And how she had eventually given up and taken to reading, good, old-fashioned, 
pictures in your head whose reality or unreality was not set in the disappointing permanence of unalterable loss, reading. Even when Mr. Humphreys died in Book 8, Worlds Undone, he was alive again when you restarted the series from the beginning. It was a resurrection that worked in the ever-renewing and ever-evolving pictures in her head. The pictures of her family just stayed the same, which seemed like even more death than the death they had already endured. Mr. Humphreys was alive now. Here. She wondered which book she was in. Mr. Humphreys gave her a tight-lipped smile and looked off downstream. Maxine felt a full-body shiver start in her thighs. She looked down. The water in the stream was wondrously clear, and the sound it made as it burbled and tinkled over the bed of smooth, deep red stones was very pleasant. It was everywhere. It seemed to flutter up from the stream bed itself, and then wind its way around the trees that clung to the banks on either side. Their, their trunks were squat and thick, but their khaki roots and branches seemed to expand and reach almost enthusiastically. Was that what she felt from these trees as they spread and entwined with one another, grasped and embraced one another's branches like they were holding hands in a kind of celebration of being all together and all of a kind? Yes! Yes, it was if the, as, if, as if the leaves of each tapering bough were like tiny green and orange hands wandering over one another with such profound intimacy. All the while, the, the gentle music of the, of the stream darting in and out of the canopy as it hid and disappeared and, and then reappeared again like it was playing a game with her, like playing a game of, of, of swirling audio peekaboo. All of it seemed to be breathing, undulating. It was all alive and moving and twining and releasing and entwining and releasing and entwining. And Mr. Humphreys cleared his throat and let out the tiniest pointed little sigh. Then he looked at Maxine, still with the tight-lipped smile, and said, Perhaps, Miss Maxine, we should be going now. He pulled a small watch chain from the waist pocket of his orange and tweed spacesuit, as if to illustrate the obvious time constraints, and raised his furry eyebrows. This has been Maxine and the Planets Unknown by Brad Lawrence. Intro music, Bumbling by Pictures of the Floating World. Outro music, Children by the Creek by Chad Crouch. Thank you for listening.